And the first Bible reading is going to be Nehemiah, chapter 9, verse 38, and then chapter 10, verse 28 to 39. Uh, And that can be found on uh, page 420 of the church Bibles. So Nehemiah, chapter 9, verse 38, and then chapter 10, 28 to 39. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Then there's a list of all the names of the people who sealed that. And then fortunately, I get to start from verse 28. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighbouring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all those now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands." regulations and decrees of the Lord our Lord. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighbouring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and will cancel, cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts and at that appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar for the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, We will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of our trees and of our new wine and olive oil. We will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine and olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priests, the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. 
we will not neglect the house of our God. Please turn to John 14 if you haven't already. Uh, We're going to start reading from verse 15, and this is Jesus speaking. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realise that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, to uh, quote a great film in the year 2000, bring it on. Brr, it is cold in here, but it is good to see you. Uh, my name is James, one of the pastors of this church, and uh, let's pray, shall we? Gracious Lord, we thank you that though it is a cold night, that we have this building with the heat and each other, and uh, we want to thank you for your word, and as you have just spoken to us in Nehemiah and in John, we ask, Lord, that we would not be just hearers of your word, but doers as well. Amen. Well, in the year 1884, this building was built. Edmund Blackett designed it and took about a year. It was named St. John the Baptist Anglican. Uh, There's a stained glass window there. You can't see it, but there's a picture of it, what it looks like. That's St. John the Baptist. He kind of looks a bit guilty. Kind of like, you know, someone said, who double parked with the white Hyundai? Sort of like... Anyway, but that's him. 1884, this building was built, right? Long time ago. 1885, those doors were open. Services met, sermons were preached, hymns were sung. And the real work began. It's easy to build a building. It is far harder to change one's heart to genuinely love and follow Jesus. We have been looking at the book of Nehemiah. And it seemed at first this was a book all about building walls, or rebuilding them, I should say. But if that was the case, it would have ended in chapter 7, where they finished work, the people returned, and then the credits rolled, and you'd close it. But we've titled this series, Restore 
and revive. Because the first half of this book was about restoring the walls, but that's not all it is. The purpose of Nehemiah is far greater than a building project, but it is about reviving the hearts of God's people to genuinely worship and obey God. It's easy to build a building. It's easy to fix the exterior. It is far harder to change what's in here. Now, I admit, in the last couple of chapters of Nehemiah, it can, you can get a bit lost, right? The story starts to wane. You think, what's, what's happening here? And so there's a helpful pattern in the last couple of chapters of this book that I, that I want you to know. It's the pattern of revival. We kicked off in chapter 8 two weeks ago where we saw revival always begins by the Word of God. This is the instrument of changing hearts. And as they opened it in chapter 8 of this book, God's people saw almost like a mirror where they saw two things, that God is faithful and they were not. So last week in chapter 9, we what did it bring about? Repentance. This acknowledgement that I'm the problem. Not out there. I'm not the victim. No, no, no. I'm responsible for what I've done. And this repentance, as we'll see tonight, brings about obedience. Because a test case, right, to see whether revival is happening in one's heart is what does it look like? What happens next? I'll tell you what I mean. Let's say you're in the with a GP, and the doctor gives you bad news, that your health is in a terrible state. And the main reason is because of your diet. It is, it is shocking. And if you don't change your diet, you're going to end up dead in a couple of weeks. Now, the test for understanding whether you've understood it or not is what happens next, isn't it? Because if you leave that door, that GP out that door, and go get a Big Mac meal with a box of Krispy Kremes, right? You haven't understood the problem. If God's people in chapter 9 just felt bad, bitter remorse, but nothing changes, they haven't understood the problem, have they? But have a look at what they do. Turn with me, Nehemiah chapter 10, page 421. Verse 29 said, All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and, here's the important part, to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, decrees of the Lord our Lord. They want to obey carefully all the commands of God. Now, the question we've got to ask ourselves is why? Why do they want to obey? You'll notice the first verse that we read in the previous chapter, verse 38, it says, in view of all this, we make a binding agreement, right? The reason why they want to obey God because it is in response to what God has done. Unlike most religions, which say, obey God, then he'll love you. Do this for him, and then he'll want to start a relationship with you. Christianity is completely different. Which says God loves you, now you can obey. God has been faithful to you, now you can be faithful to him. 
So in view of all the amazing things in chapter nine that we saw last week, that God has been radically gracious to them in response to that mercy that they've received and that love they've received from God, they want to obey. And notice how they obey, right? Verse 29, there's an important word. They wanted to obey carefully all the commands, regulation, decrees of the Lord. All. Not the ones they liked. Not the ones they agreed with. Not the ones they were convinced. All of them. They didn't come to the word of God and like they were going to Subway. Say, I have that, not that, more of that, less of that, right? No, no, no. All. In line of what God's done, they they didn't want to pick and choose. They didn't want to be disobedient. They wanted to obey God and his commands. And so they get very specific, right? There's three areas in which they home in on what obeying God actually looks like. The first is their home life. Have a look, verse 30. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. It says when it it comes to who to marry, they promise not to marry those of surrounding cultures, not because of any racial reasons, but religious, that those nations worshipped other gods, not the God of the Bible. Now, we're going to explore that more in chapter 13, in two weeks' time, right? So I'm just going to leave that there, but we're going to come back to it in two weeks' time, right? So that's home life. They want to obey God in their home life, in their relationships. Secondly, their work life. Have a look, verse 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or any holy day. A bit of background here. Background to the Sabbath. God told his people in the Ten Commandments, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you work, but the seventh is a day of rest. That they were to pick one day, sorry, there was one day out of the seven where they were to lay down their tools, put down their pots and pans, and to rest. Why? Well, two reasons. Because there on that day, they were to worship God without the distractions of everyday life. And they were to appreciate the work that they'd done. Like God on the seventh day rested, he appreciated looking back at the world that he had made. A regular day of rest. See, God's people were not all work and no rest kind of people. They were different from others. They were people of rest. When my dad was in Thailand a number of years ago, uh, he was there in Phuket and with a tailor getting some suits made. And uh, he asked the tailor, he said, just wondering, when, when do you have a holiday? Uh, when, when, and, and the tailor said, what's that? Uh, he said, you know, it's, uh, okay. Well, when do you have like a weekend or, or, you know, a day off? And the tailor said, one day of the year, the king's day. One day is when I don't work. And my dad said, you know, the God of the Bible, the God I worship, he says you've got to work six and rest one. And the tailor stopped and he said, that sounds like a good God. <laughs> See, God's people are people of rest. And here's the thing, the Israelites, they... Chapter 10 had found a little loophole. Because though they were commanded to obey 
the Sabbath, other people of other nations weren't. So they could trade with them. They could buy and sell grain with them. This little loophole. But you know what they do? They promise, no, no, no. We're going to honor the Sabbath. We're not going to do that. Here's a question for you. In 2019, here in Church by the Bridge, do we obey this command? Do we make a promise the way they made a promise? Let me give you a little bit of a 60-second crash course in understanding the Old Testament, New Testament, what we need to obey and what we don't, right? Because we don't want to just be pick and choosers, right? We want to be consistent. Now, to help us understand this, I'm going to use a Thai phrase, same, same, but different, right? That's going to help us get in the mindset. Can you say it? Same, same, but different. Good, good, good. The Bible is not a rule book, right? Where you can just open up and be like, all right, I'm going to follow that. It's not a reference. No, no, no. It's a story. A story where the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, is there God with his people, and he gives them laws to live by. That they had to offer a sacrifice, a lamb, to take away, to deal with their sin. That they had to approach God in a temple. That they weren't allowed to eat certain things, not because those certain things were bad, but they were reminded that they were supposed to be different, holy, from other people. And the whole point of the Old Testament is this, this big fat arrow, as it were, pointing, anticipating Jesus' arrival. Because when Jesus comes on the scene, he says he is the one true sacrifice to take away sin. He is the temple, the way in which you can approach God. He is the true Sabbath rest. So we living on this side of Jesus are not under that law anymore because it was complete, it was fulfilled in what Jesus did. We're under the law of Christ now. So there's a noticeable difference where we don't have to obey the laws of the Old Testament. But there's a same-sameness too because God still requires his people to obey him. God's character hasn't changed from the old to the new. He is the same God. We haven't changed all that much. Take the Sabbath, for example. Because we live on this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we do not have to obey the Old Testament regulations around the Sabbath of the particular day or the fact that you couldn't cook or clean or do anything on that day, right? We don't follow those rules anymore, but we're still marked as people of rest. Jesus said, it's on the screen, Mark 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Whether you lived 3,000 years ago or in 2019, you and I were made to rest. I'll give an example. There's a, yeah, a lady in this church who, when she went for a new job, was shown around the office and was introduced to the whole bunch of uh, things that she'd be doing. And she just stopped. She asked the question, just wondering, the person I replaced, what happened to them? They said, oh, well, you'll never guess what. He worked in this company for seven years. Go, 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 no holidays. Seven years straight. At the end of seven years, he decided to go on a holiday to Hawaii. 
There he lay on Waikiki Beach to sunbake, and his body shut down and he died. Anyway, let me introduce you to other people in the room. You know, it was like, what, right? Here's the thing. You don't take a Sabbath, a Sabbath will be forced upon you, right? That's the reality. We need to rest. We are not made to go, go, go. That is true for all of us. But what about as Christians, right? How, how do we obey God in resting well? In Sydney, right? What is the one thing we always say when asked, how are you? We say, oh, we're busy. We're busy. We orientate our lives around being busy. We're either currently busy or things are very busy or things are about to get busy. We're about to go into a busy season or we've just come out of a busy, crazy time, right? Things are just busy, right? Busy, busy, busy. Because there is always more to do, always more to clean, always more to renovate, always more to reply to, always more to buy. Always, we're doing so many things and it never stops. Will following God impact the way you rest? Because a day of rest, having a regular day of rest as part of your pattern of life, tells you two things. Firstly this, you're not indispensable. Because often we keep going and going and going because we think no one else can do it. Or no one else can do it like I do. So we go, we go, we go. We think we're the solution. But a day of rest humbles you like nothing else will. Saying, no, 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 I'm not indispensable. I can stop. It also does another thing. Because we work so much, it it's, takes up many hours of our week, we can often find our density in it. So now I'm the doctor, I'm the teacher, I'm the engineer, I'm the lawyer, I'm the busy one, I'm the high achiever, I'm successful, I'm not lazy, Right? And we find identity in it. But a day of rest, when you stop doing that, stop doing work, says, no, 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 my identity is not in what I do. I can stop. My identity is found elsewhere. Because our problem is sometimes we overfunction and we think we don't need to sleep, we don't need to rest. We can be God. The reality is we do that, we burn out or we burn our family and friends. So let me ask you, when is your day of rest? That day where you lay down your tools, so to speak. You appreciate the work that you've done. You worship God, a day of rest. Because here's the thing, a Sabbath, it takes work. It actually takes work to rest well. Because you've got to guard it, protect it. The, the Israelites, right, they, bit by bit, these foreign tribes, they were robbing them of their rest in subtle ways, but they said no. The thing that will rob us from rest is generally this thing. Emails, text message, phone calls. My day off is, is Friday, right, the day when I rest. And I have had to fight not to check emails. It has not come like that. It has taken effort. Because I, I, I think in my mind, look, it's only just going to take 30 seconds to just reply, then I have to do it the next day, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know if I do that. It might take 30 seconds 
but my mind is racing for an hour. And so have it to stop, don't check it, don't have it there, and that has not been easy. But it has enabled me to not find my identity in what I do. Bit of advice. When taking a day off, do something that's different from your work. Because I'm with people all day, sitting down, I garden. Completely different to what I do. It refreshes me. My wife is with the kids most days, and so she goes for a run. That is better than just scrolling through Instagram or binging on Netflix, right? Find something that's different to your work that fills your time, that refreshes you. The Israelites were committed to resting well. Are you? So that's their work life, right? They want to obey God when it comes to their work life. The third and final thing is church life. Have a look, verse 32. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. The third way in which they want to commit to obeying God is when it comes to their finances, and particularly giving to the house of the Lord, the temple. Now, as we've seen in Nehemiah, the foreign kings have funded the rebuilding of the wall and other things, but they know it is their what responsibility to maintain it, to not shrug it off saying, oh, someone else will do it. No, no, no. They're responsible. And so God gave the command a, a temple tax there in verse 32, or verse 37, a tithe, give 10% to the house of the Lord. They knew obeying God meant impacting their wallets. And this money, right, went to a whole bunch of things. This, this tax and this, these tithes went to a whole bunch of things like uh, offerings and duties of the house of the Lord and bread set on the table to enable the house of the Lord to run well. Now, was this easy for them? No. Nah. It is never easy to part with money, right? You see this in verse 35. We assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. Now, a farmer is so dependent on what comes from the orchard or what comes from the, the sheep and the cattle. So dependent. We don't really get it. We kind of get a taste of it, you know, when that check comes in, your bank account, you've been paid, whether monthly or fortnightly. The sort of sense of, ah, pay the bills. Ah, we can buy that thing. Ah, there's going to be food, right? But when a farmer sees that first apple of the season, or the first lamb, they know we're going to eat. We're going to survive. But yet, they were to give the first to God. Now, the first didn't necessarily mean the best. It wasn't the highest quality, but it was the first. And it was that mindset that this is not ultimately my money, it's God's money. When the first of it came in, it said, will I trust God to truly provide for me? I'm giving it to the temple. Because if I gave later, I ain't gonna give. Now, You'll notice here in this chapter, there's a regularity to the way they give. They say, we're going to give this time, this date. They're not impulsive. It's not like, well, the sermon really impacted me, so today I'm going to give. 
none of my favorite songs were sung, so I'm not going to give, right? It's not that impossible. They were regular. And regular giving, right, consistent giving, moves you from a consumer to a giver. Moves you from saying, were my needs met or were the needs of others met? Uh, My wife and I, we give electronically uh, monthly. And that's, we do that mainly because we struggle to get the church finding our child's second shoe in the morning and all that. So there's a whole bunch of things going on. So that has been helpful. But I tell you where it's brought about a, a joy for us. Because on the first Sunday of the month, when, when Paul does a celebration video and shares all the good things that have happened in church, we know we enabled some of that. And a lot of the ministries, they don't affect us personally. So when we hear of how great the Living Single Conference was and that it blessed many people in this room, that brings a joy. When you hear about the youth group, right? We don't have any teenagers, but to hear how teenagers hearing about Jesus and some following Jesus for the first time, that brings a joy. The fact that 11% of what you give goes to mission partners overseas in countries that I can't even point to on a map. I don't even know where Albania is, right? But part of what we give enables people who I will never meet this side of Jesus. But they get to hear about Jesus. And I get partner in that. Question. Like the Sabbath, are we commanded to obey these laws? Remember our phrase? Same, same, but different. Different. The commands to give a temple tax. The command to give 10%, right? Because of living on this side of Jesus, we don't follow those commands anymore. We're not bound by a certain number. Have a look at 2 Corinthians on the screen. See if you can find a number in here. Each one of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Not a number in there, is there? Not a 10% tick. No, no, no. Living this side of Jesus doesn't want you to be restrained by numbers. Give what is in your heart, 5, 10, 20, whatever it may be. Because once you've understood the generosity of Christ, that should affect all areas, but particularly wanting to give and give cheerfully. So it's different living this side of Jesus. But there's a, a same sameness. Because just like God expected his people to provide for the house of the Lord, to enable ministry, he also wanted them to provide for ministry workers. Back in the day, it was Levites. Today, we call them ministers. Have a look in 1 Timothy. It's on the screen. Hear what the Apostle Paul says. The elders who direct the affairs of the church of the Czechs well, are worthy of double honor, especially those who work as preaching and teaching. For Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. What I love about Paul is he has the ability to, in two sentences, build up a minister and then humble them at the same time, right? Double honor, but you're a cow, right? (laughs) I don't know if you see me as an ox, but I'm your ox. Susan, Paul, Curtis, we're your oxes, right? And what Paul is saying there is when you give, it goes to ministry, but it also goes to ministry workers. I used to be a high school teacher, right? 
I couldn't do what I do now in preaching and teaching and pastoring if I was also a high school teacher, particularly come report writing time, right? But it is part of giving is to enable me to stop teaching students to teaching the Word of God here at church. And for the record, I love it. But here's the thing. When it comes to money in church, it can get messy. Things can go bad. When churches get naive and think, oh, we're all Christians, yeah, we'll be fine, right? That's when things go wrong. There's a principle here in Nehemiah 10, which I think is a very helpful principle. Verse 38, have a look. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. Now, a priest, what that's saying there is a priest who's different from a Levite is there watching over the Levites as the tithes come in to make sure they go to the treasury. When I was three years old, I, at church, I wandered into the back rooms, right? And I found the offertory bags, put my hand in, came out, said, look, Dad, with a lot of cash, right? <laughs> now, that greed as a three-year-old doesn't go when you become an adult. It doesn't go when you become a Christian. It doesn't go when you become a minister, right? So this principle of accountability is very important. So that's why at church we do two things. No pastoral staff touch money. When an offertory is collected at the end of the service, two people who are not pastors, who are not married or related, count that money. And then it's counted again tomorrow. The second thing we do is make sure all the books get audited by independent body, which you can have a look at at any time. Why? Well, basically, we don't trust ourselves. And we want to be accountable. And we want to make sure that when you give, you can give trusting, knowing that it will end up where it's supposed to be given. So the Israelites sought to obey God, his commands at home, at work, and at church. What about you? Where are you at? Before we have a moment of reflection, I just want to ask one question, one final one. Why does God give us rules to live by? Why does he give us commandments to follow? Often we think of God as up there experimenting, saying, oh, let's give them this one. They're going to fail at that. Or some sort of killjoy, like, oh, they're going to hate this. Let's go. No, no, no. God, the Father, gives us laws and rules to live by. Because he made this world and he made you and I and he knows best on how to live it when it comes to your home life, your work life, your church life. Jesus, the son of God, knew that we would be disobedient to God's word. So he came as the only one who obeyed all of them perfectly. So that at that cross, you get his perfect record and he gets our disobedient one. And God, the Holy Spirit, who lives in you as a follower of Jesus, is there empowering you, motivating you, changing you to actually want to follow God. 
to obey all of his word. God wants us to obey him for his glory and our ultimate good. So what I want you to do is, whether you're a writer, you might write this down, you might grab out your phone to the notes, I want you to think, what is one specific thing that you need to obey God in? What is one specific thing that you need to obey God in? And can I say, get specific like the Israelites, right? If you are in that world of generality, you know, I'll just oh, give to church or I'll arrest more, I'll love more, right? No, Satan loves it because he knows what you know deep down. And it ain't going to make a bar of difference in your life. Satan is troubled, is worried when you make specific tangible calls to obey God in. So can I encourage you? Write, think specifically. This week, I need to follow God and do this. I'm going to give you a moment to think, to reflect by yourself, and then we'll sing. the band comes up, let me just say this. If you want to see the fruit, the effects of revival in your own life, and it's not going to happen in here. It's going to happen when you leave those doors and what you do with what you've written down, what you do in obeying God. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, We know that you are good and your word is good, but so often we think we know better. We are sorry. We ask, Lord, that we would seek, like your people have always thought, to obey you. Obey you and your word. Not to pick and choose, but to obey all of it, Lord, because you are good and you want us to follow you. We thank you that you have not led us on our own to do this, but the power of your spirit, that you're prompting us, motivating us to obey you in small, in practical, in big, in tangible ways, Lord. So we ask that you would revive our hearts and change our lives, that we would obey you, our good, good Father. Amen.